Okay. Um, Matthew 19, verse 13. I have a message that today that I, I, I consider it to be a little unusual because it's not quite how I always approach a passage of Scripture in the Bible. But, um, well... That'll just be enough to whet your appetite. Let's pray, and then I'll explain as we go along here. Let us pray, everybody. Our Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you so much that we've come to this time now where we can read and study your word, and your word just teaches us so many things, and and Lord, I learned myself so many things this week as I was preparing to say these things today. My prayer, Lord God, is that you would help me to say clearly Lord, the things that you want me to, and help us, Lord God, to all receive your word and understand it. Help us, Lord God, then to believe it, and where appropriate, help us to put it into practice in our lives. Help us learn new things. Help us to have things that we've already learned to be affirmed. Help us to be rebuked and corrected in our walking or in our thinking. In all things, help us to come away from it looking at Jesus looking at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that the only way to come to you, Almighty Father, is through faith in your only begotten Son. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, and you, I'm the one whose voice is heard, but it's you who teaches. You're the teacher in us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would do your work, that we would grow stronger in the faith, If there's anyone who's come in here today, Lord God, who's not in the faith, that through what they've already heard, through what they'll still yet hear, that they will be convinced by your power and by your spirit that they need salvation in Jesus and that you're the only place to find it. Thank you, Lord. I pray for the establishment and strengthening of the faith of every person hearing this now. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew 19, 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. What I find will often happen when a passage like this is read is what will follow is a sermon about children. But it's not quite what jumped off the page in my expositional study as I went through it during the uh, week here, something kind of different. I felt like the Lord took me in a slightly different direction, all rooted in what is said here. There are certainly some things to say about children as we uh, um, examine this passage of Scripture, and I will. But once again, as we have already seen previously, it's the Lord Jesus using the presence of children to teach something else, right? And what really happens here in this passage? Little children, not just children, but little children. So we're talking about very young children, younger than the ones who are just prayed for up here. Little children are brought to Jesus. 
And what immediately happens is, well, we're told two things. We're told that the people that brought them to Jesus wanted Jesus to put his hands on them and to pray for them, right? And then you have the disciples rebuking them. Why might the disciples have rebuked them? It doesn't really say, but perhaps they saw it as something that was out of order. Maybe they thought to themselves, there's no way these little children can possibly understand what's going on, so why just go through the formality of laying hands on them and praying for them? I admit that in my own weakness, I might have had such a thought in my head. Uh, They might have just saw Jesus as too busy with other things and saw this as an intrusion on what they thought Jesus would want to be doing at the time. They, uh, they might have seen it as like a, a, a step in between them and Jesus, sort of a, a threat to what they understood the order of things to be. There's Jesus, there's us, there's everybody else, and you're, not, you're certainly not going to Jesus to try to get these children blessed. I don't know, but something like that is going on and they're offended. And so they actually rebuke the people who bring these little children to Jesus. Now, the great irony of that is what? That Jesus had just not long before this spoken to them when they were doing what? They were questioning among themselves, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus at that point himself picked up a little child. This is just a chapter or two ago. Jesus picked up himself a little child and placed the child in the middle of them and said, basically what he says is, here's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven right here. The one who becomes like this little child and uses it to show that it's humility and servanthood and faith and utter love and dependence on God that defines greatness in the kingdom of heaven, not all of the things that men use to define greatness among themselves. So, pretty interesting that here come some people with little children coming to Jesus and want Jesus to lay his hands on them and bless them. I mean, there is quite a reputation that Jesus had already for laying hands on people and having amazing things happen, whether it's demons being cast out or people receiving their eyesight or, or, or people being healed of various infirmities. There's all sorts of wonderful... So it's like, hey, well, here's my little baby. Here's my little infant. Let's have the Lord lay his hands on them and pray for them. How could that be bad? Well, that's proper thinking. It couldn't really be bad, right? But so here they come and the disciples rebuke them. And then Jesus, in verse 14, responds with a great affirmation of what he had already said to them. Let them come. Let them come to me. I mean, don't you remember what I said about this already? Let them come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You're forbidding little children to come when I have said to you that this is what people in my kingdom are like. And previously what he was talking about was who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Here he's just talking about anybody in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what people in the kingdom of heaven are like. They're like these little children. Let them come. And then what does he do? Doesn't care what they think. Not worried about how they might react. Lays his hand on them and prays for them. Right? Right? laid his hands on them, and then they left. And that was the end of it. 
And there's no other words recorded in the conversation. Now, the main application of what happened there is the affirmation of the fact that the kingdom of God is made up of people who are like little children, which says to you and to me that if I cherish my place in the kingdom of heaven, and if I truly love the king, if I truly have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then as I live my life, I am going to live it before God as a little child. Not in wanton immaturity, which is one of the negative characteristics of a little child, but in the positive characteristics of the little child, which is that utter dependence upon Christ, that complete dependence upon Christ. I'm not too big for Christ. I'm not too much for Christ. This stuff about Christ is not too primitive for me. It doesn't grow old on me. I learned from the beginning that Christ is who I need. I've walked with the Lord for over 30 years, and I still realize I'm nothing without Christ. In fact, if I've grown, I realize it even more. I need Christ like a little child needs everyone in its life. Think about it. Little children, they need their parents. Maybe they need their older siblings. They need other people who help out with things. They are utterly dependent on others. They cannot live by themselves. So it is in the kingdom of God. The subjects in the kingdom can't live without the king. We need him. And so we depend on him. And so Jesus affirms that by saying, don't forbid them. Let them come. This is what my kingdom is like. And he lays his hands on them. And then they leave. Now, with that understanding of that passage of Scripture, I suppose I could just say, Jed and Amy, come on back up here and let's sing the closing hymn. And let's all go home. But you know me better than that. So you know that we're not going to just end with that. Because there's one more thing that jumped off the page that launched me off into what I thought was really fascinating. I never really thought about it this way before. But I'm familiar with the MO, modus operandi, that's Latin, operating mode in English. Um, I'm familiar with the way that Jesus works enough to know that throughout the accounts of his life, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can look into the book of Acts for other examples of this kind of thing. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are many examples of people bringing other people to Jesus. People bringing things to Jesus. People bringing situations to Jesus. And so many of the chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John revolve around something like, then they brought little children to him. You know, I put a verse inside uh, your bulletins this morning. It was Matthew 4.24, and it says... Then his fame went throughout all Syria. You can just listen to it. I mean, you can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read it. 
Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him, they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And that itself is a great statement, is it not? That they brought all of these people who were sick with things that certainly even in that world they couldn't explain and still can't today, and they brought them, and Jesus just healed them all. But it doesn't end there. They bring all of their sick and everyone to Jesus, and it leads to great multitudes following him from everywhere. It says, from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from around all of Judea, and even on the other side of the Jordan. There were great multitudes that followed him. And do you know what that resulted in? The next verse is, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he started to teach. And he started off with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. What is that? It's the sermon sermon on the, the Beatitudes, which is the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And I thought to myself, what a marvelous thing when people people bring people to Jesus. What wonderful things always happened when people brought people to Jesus or even brought things to Jesus, as we'll see. These great miraculous moments happened. These great teaching moments happened. And they weren't always good. Sometimes people brought people to Jesus with the wrong motives. Sometimes they brought situations or things to Jesus with evil intent. And Jesus turned it around. And it became something glorious and wonderful. And so I began in my study days ago to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at every single one of the times that people brought people or things to Jesus. And I made a huge list. And I'm going to read every single one of them to you right now. No, no, I'm not. I'm going to read four more of them to you, just so you can see how magnificent this is. But before I get into the ones I want to highlight, just a a little synopsis of this, I already told you in Matthew 4.24, they brought all these sick and paralyzed people, and it resulted not only in a bunch of miraculous healings, but the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 8, they brought a demon-possessed man to Jesus. Jesus cast the demon out and made the point of showing that it was a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53.4, that he bore our infirmities. Um, In chapter 9, in verse 32, also in chapter 12 and verse 22, and then in chapter 15 and verse 1, in three different occasions, it speaks of Jesus performing miracles. Listen, and the persecutors saying to the crowd around, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And the result is that Jesus gives this great, wonderful, timeless teaching about true defilement, you know, And he says that it comes real, I can't cast out demons by the ruler of demons. 
You know, if I were, he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he talks about real defilement comes from inside a person. It results in all of these incredible things. Um, There's the occasion of the deaf man with the speech impediment where Jesus looks him in the face and says, Ephatha, because he can't hear. So he says in the language, Ephatha, which means be opened because the guy could read his lips. And the result is that the people who are standing there go, he has done all things well. Listen, and so on. One time they brought him a donkey. And what happened? He rode it into Jerusalem. And in so doing, fulfilled one of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament, that your king would come to you lowly and riding on a cult, and, uh, not cult, but colt. And uh, no, he doesn't ride on a cult. He rides on a colt. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But he comes into the, he rides into Jerusalem and we call it Palm Sunday, right? But, so there's all of this. So I went through and I read them and there's more. I went through them and I studied them and I said, what a marvelous thing it is when people come to Jesus and they bring things to Jesus. They bring people to Jesus. They bring burdens to Jesus. They just bring their lives to Jesus. Whenever anyone brought someone to Jesus, something amazing always happened. Listen, when you came to Jesus, what happened? You met God. You met your Creator for the first time in your life. Your sins were washed away. He came into you to take up permanent residence in your soul. He set your course for heaven and eternal life. All your sins were taken away so that God doesn't remember them anymore. And you were sealed with His Spirit and are now inseparable from His love. Ready to look at a few more passages of Scripture? Shake your head, yes. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Let's just have a little fun this morning in the Lord. And let's look at what our Bibles... Oh, the Bible can just be a great joy as well as great edification sometimes. Let's look at some of these amazing things that happened when people or things were brought to Jesus. There are accounts of this in Matthew and Luke as well. I'll read Mark's because it has the most detail. Chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So the house is crammed with people. Outside, it's all crammed with people, and you can't even get close to the front door of the house. And what did he do? He preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So you ready? So what did they bring to Jesus? They brought what I guess could be thought of as a stretcher with a, with a paralyzed man on it. And when they got there, verse 4 says, they couldn't even get near the door because of the crowd. So what did they do? They did something that all of you hope nobody will ever do at your house if they can't get in. They climbed up on the roof and they ripped a hole in it so they could get in. Okay, well, it's Jesus. So we'll, say, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and say that's okay because this is Jesus, right? 
So, he, so, they, so it says, when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So when Jesus saw their faith, verse 5, see it? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, rise, you are healed. Oh, wait, no, that's not what it says. And this is, this is one of those marvelous things that happens when someone brings someone to Jesus. When he saw them lower this man, it says he saw their faith. How many of you know that Jesus sees faith? We think of faith as something that's just bottled up in here, which mostly it is. It's in our heart. But you can see faith. Faith is, that's what James means when he says faith without works is dead. Faith shows up and faith showed up in these guys' lives in that they climbed up and they ripped a hole in the roof to get past the crowd because they had to get to Jesus. So they brought this man to Jesus and they lower him into the roof and Jesus sees, it doesn't say he sees his faith, it says he sees their faith. So we're talking not just about the, the paralytic, but we're talking about the guys who climbed on the roof and lowered him in. He saw their, plural, he saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes who were sitting there reasoning, their heart said, hallelujah, his sins are forgiven. Come on, at that moment you're supposed to say, no, Lou, that's not what it says, because it doesn't. No, it says, it says, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? They were offended. Uh, so see, they brought someone to Jesus, and Jesus wasn't just going to let it be, okay, get up and walk. Jesus was going to turn it into something glorious because they brought someone to Jesus, and they just, listen, I don't know what they thought they were going to do when they woke up that morning. But when they found out that Jesus was in the house, they grabbed this guy and they took that guy there. When they saw that crowd, they were undeterred. We're taking him to Jesus. Even if it means ripping through the roof. Maybe we'll be arrested for breaking through this guy's roof. But we're taking this man to Jesus, no matter what. And so these guys are all offended. Why does he speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know what's incredible about that is they're right. They're right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But God, that's exactly what Jesus wants them to think. You are correct, sirs. No one can forgive sins but God alone. So Jesus immediately perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus. Another little look at the amazingness of Jesus, that he knew what was going on inside them, not just their thoughts or their words, but he perceived in his spirit that they were reasoning in themselves. That is to say, Jesus sensed the offense in them at this. So he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? To which I would have said, how do you know that's what I'm reasoning about in my heart? But, 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 but he knew. And then he says in verse 9, look at the glory. Ready? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Obviously, it's easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven you. Because then you can just walk away, you know, and ah, look at me. Look at the great grace that I showed. Your sins are forgiven you. I'm really something. You know, it would be really hard 
stand in a house that's so full that nobody can even get near the front door and in front of all those people say, get up and walk. That would be harder, right? And then he says this. He said to the, now he turns to the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all. I I don't think the idea is that he climbed back up through the roof and went out the hole in the roof again. I think the idea is probably that, like, he walked right through that sardine-like crowd, pressed his way through, pressed his way out the front door. So all the people who were outside who saw him go up on the roof and into the house saw him walk out. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. But listen, so that you know he is able to forgive sins, the easier thing to say, here's the harder one, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked, which proved what? It proved Jesus was legit when he said your sins are forgiven you. And why did Jesus forgive the man's sins? Because he saw their faith. And faith is the only path to the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. We are saved by God's grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the guy is brought to Jesus, and look what happens. He's healed. The religious hypocrites are confounded, never a bad thing. All the people standing around are amazed by the great miracle, and everybody is taught, here is our salvation. Because someone was brought to Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 7 and verse 30. Isn't this fun? It's fun for me. I hope it's fun for you. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. There are two separate occasions in the Bible where a woman brings, not a person here, but a woman brings a box of ointment, a precious box of ointment. In both cases, the boxes are made of alabaster, which would have been something that lasted for a long time, but once broken, was broken for good, was shot. So this is the kind of thing where, like, you have this precious ointment sealed in this alabaster box, and you have one opportunity in life to use it. It was wealth, is what it was, right? There weren't, there weren't sophisticated stock markets and 401ks and savings and things People, people, people's wealth was wrapped up in valuable things. Something you could be kept hidden. and some, so, so she has this box, right? This is one of the two occasions. I, honestly, I read them both and I, I thought to myself, which one should I share? They're both, they're both, they're both incredible situations. I, I picked the other ones in Matthew 26, 6, if you want to read it for yourself later. But this is a separate occasion for sure. And it says this. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That's a good thing, Right? 
Very good. That's good to see one of the Pharisees having Jesus over to eat. You know something? Just I could do a separate sermon about good things happen when you get together to eat, but this church doesn't need to be convinced of that because, because we get together and eat all the time. So, so, you know. But in any case, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... That's very kindly worded. A woman, who, a woman in the city who was a sinner. I'm not going to elaborate on what possibly that meant, but she was not in a good way. Um, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. Don't miss the weeping. Why is she weeping? She's weeping for the reason that every one of us ought to weep. Is we recognize, we recognize that through life, whether life has heaped it upon us or we have brought it on ourselves or it's a little bit of both, which it is for all of us, we fall so far short of the holiness of God. And when she recognizes that Jesus is in the house, I mean, it's not likely that she was an invited guest. So she comes in with this flask of oil and she stands behind him and she's weeping and she starts to wash his feet with her tears. Man, that's a lot of tears. Enough liquid produced to wash someone's feet? That's some crying, folks. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. Foot washing wasn't just a cheap gesture. Foot washing was a real thing. Foot washing was like your feet are dirty, so they need to be washed. So she's like wiping the dirt off of his feet with her tears and her hair. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the oil that was in the alabaster flask. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man must really, really be something special. Look at how this woman was drawn to this man. No, you're following and you're paying attention, right? What the Pharisee said to himself was, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. There is, there is way too much of this in the world. There's way too much of it in the church. There's no place in God's creation anywhere for a person to be like that. And if you're like that, knock it off. You're like this Pharisee. Do you think this Pharisee was without sin? If this woman was a prostitute, do you, do you think that this Pharisee was, that was without sexual immorality in his life? More on that in a minute.
And Jesus answered. Can you just think about those three words for a minute? It doesn't actually say that the guy said anything to Jesus. All it says was, he spoke to himself. So the man spoke to himself, and then Jesus answered him. Hello. That's pretty cool, right? That's Jesus being Jesus. So this man speaks to himself if he were a prophet, which shows that he doesn't believe that Jesus is anything. He would know who and what manner of woman this was. Look, who is what? Touching him. See, I mean, they believed, they, they kind of believed in cooties. Am I dating myself when I say that? They, they, they kind of believed that by touching him, she was defiling him. That's where his head was. She's a sinner. Jesus answers this and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says, teacher, say it. So he goes immediately from not thinking he's a prophet to calling him teacher. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed, and here it goes again. Somebody brings a box of ointment to Jesus and it becomes this incredible teaching moment. It's it's timeless and so powerful. It's amazing to me. I mean, I'm not alone. This is amazing, right? One owed 500 denarii, the other 50, right? So one owed 10 times more. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. One owed a lot, one owed a little. Both were forgiven their debt. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? They'll both love him, of course, but which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you've got it. You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, right? So now the woman's back in focus, but he's still talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet because, as I said, you traveled, you're wearing sandals, dusty, and you go into someone's house. A way of hospitality was to wash the dust off of their feet. The Pharisee did not do that. The woman did it with her hair and with her tears. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Not just any oil, but really valuable stuff. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven the same loves little. May I say to you as Christians, I don't care who you think you are or how you think you've lived, we've all been forgiven a lot. We are at best professional sinners, assassin sinners, ninja sinners. I mean, we're good at it. We... We're so good at it, we sin and we don't even notice. That's why David prayed, cleanse me from secret faults. Because because there were sins that were even secret to himself. We're so sinful. We're so sinful. And every one of us should be like this woman. Every one of us should be like this woman. 
We recognize who it is, and it's like you can't keep your eyes dry, and you want to take the most valuable thing you got and just pour it all out on worship of him who saved us. Jesus said, she loved, she's been forgiven much, so she loves much. Her sins are forgiven. Your, and then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, here's the key, your faith has saved you. Wow. She was saved. She was saved by faith. Again, that's where it always ends up. That's where it did with the other guy. It all started because, not because a person was brought to Jesus, but because a flask, an alabaster flask of oil was brought to Jesus to anoint him and to worship him. And it ended up being this great, amazing thing that happened. Want to read another one? Shake your head, yes. Turn to math. Did someone say no? Too, too bad, no. Turn to, turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, here's one where a person is brought to Jesus, and it doesn't seem like a good example. Here's where someone is brought to Jesus, and it seems like something very, very bad, which at first it is but it ends up being something very, very good. John 8, chapter 2. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So far, so good. So right in the middle of him sitting in the temple and teaching, The scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Then we're told they said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Because that was really their motive. They didn't care about the law. They didn't care about the woman. Presumably there was a man involved as well. I guess they didn't care about him, right? They didn't care about the fact that he was teaching. They didn't care about rudely and obnoxiously interrupting the fact that the Son of God was teaching people. They didn't care about any of that. What they wanted was to find something of which to accuse him. What did they want? They wanted to be able to say, this man is against the law of Moses. This man is an opponent of God, certainly not a prophet, certainly not the Messiah. That's what they're after. So they think they've got him because they dragged in a woman who was guilty of adultery and actually caught in the very act of it. Jesus, we're told, stooped down and wrote on the ground. What did he write? There's all sorts of things, books and sermons and commentaries about what Jesus... I don't have any idea. It doesn't say. I don't know. It's fun to speculate. I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if Jesus was just doodling. Really, just doodling nothing so as to 
kind of demonstrate that these accusations that they're bringing are nothing to him. I wonder if Jesus was writing what he wrote in the Sermon on the Mount, what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder if he was writing, but I say to you, he who looks on a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. I wonder if he was writing that. I wonder if he was, as I've heard speculated, writing down the lists, a list of all of the sins they had committed. What if he was like drawing a picture with a caption under it and it was like the first meme in history? I don't know. But Jesus is, is he's deliberately... You understand what he's doing, obviously. He's deliberately trying to show them that all of these accusations mean nothing. It, it actually says that the, the, the point was like, it, it appeared like he wasn't even really hearing what they said, right? I think it says that. Yeah, the end of verse 6, as though he did not hear. So that's the point. Now, so when they continued asking him, so that's not it. They didn't just ask once. He's there doodling on the ground. They're going, what do you say? Give us an answer. We caught her in adultery. She's supposed to be stoned. Give us an answer. What do you say? What, what are you doing? Will you, what? What? What's your... They continue to ask him, it says, in verse 7. Then he stands up and he says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And apparently, without missing a beat, goes right back down to the ground and continues writing. This passage of Scripture is usually known in people's minds as a woman caught in the act of adultery. I don't know why. I think in our minds this passage of Scripture should be known as a crowd caught in the act of hypocrisy. That's what it should be called. Right? I mean, that's really what it is. Gloriously. Now, I I, I want to point something out. Famously, in a minute here, you're going to see that Jesus does not condemn the woman. But may I say to you, he did not condemn the crowd either. Does it say he condemned them? No. What what he did actually affirmed the fact that what they said was right. He didn't stand up and say, no, you're wrong. No, Moses didn't say that. You're reading it wrong. No, he didn't. He actually stood up and said, he who is without sin, let him cast a stone at her first. So in a way, he's like affirming that what they said was right. But then what's he appealing to? Listen, listen, listen. He's appealing to their conscience. He's appealing to their conscience. Yes, the law did say that. But who are you to stone them? Who are you to bring this... Who are you to bring her before me? Who are you to suggest that she should be stoned? See, brothers and sisters, there is a place. Jesus was not condoning the sexual immorality of the woman. We'll see that in a moment. But do you know that, do you know that there is a place, while there is a place for correcting behavior, among people who are sinning, do you not know 
that the Bible says to correct them in love and to restore them lest you yourselves are also tempted. The sin of this crowd is that they had made themselves unrighteous judges because they forgot who they were. They forgot that the spirit of the law was, even if you just have a lustful thought, you're an adulterer. And you're an adulteress, which he had taught them. It says... It says, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to even the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman there. They all started to walk away. May I suggest to you, this is a good thing. This shows that their consciences worked. That's a good thing. That's why I say, this sounds like a bad thing, but this is a good thing. Right? Because Jesus appealed to the spirit of his law. Jesus appealed to Jesus appealed to how all sinners should be towards one another. Gracious. Compassionate. Patience. I wrote this down because it came to me. There is a difference between correcting someone in love and judging them as worthy of death and stoning them in spite. Did you hear what I said? There is a difference between rebuking and patiently correcting someone in love because you remember what you were and picking up stones and condemning them in spite. The latter happens too much. The latter should never happen. We are called as Christians to correct one another in love. We are called to be patient. We are called to bear one another's burdens and in so doing we fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to, we are called to love, which means to put other people ahead of ourselves. We are called to pray for people who persecute us and love our enemies. We, we are called to something that's so far over and above anything that we could ever be if we walk in our flesh. And that's what was happening with these guys. They were walking in their flesh because that's all they had. But I'm glad that starting with the oldest, I'm, I, I, there's different theories about what it means that it started with the oldest. Maybe it started with the oldest because they were the most sinful. I like to think that it's, that started with the oldest because they were the ones whose consciences had more sense, the most sensitivity to them. Maybe, maybe there was a little more sense in the older ones and they realized, I don't, I don't have any right to be judgmental over this woman. I could dwell on this some more, but I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, they brought a woman to Jesus, not to kill her. They brought a woman to Jesus because they wanted to kill him. They brought the woman to Jesus because they wanted to trap him. Look what amazing thing happened. They were shown that none of us 
are worthy to be judges like that. We don't pick up stones and throw them at each other, but we use words. We use sentiments. We use deeds. We use manipulations. We use all sorts of things like their stones to throw at other people, completely forgetting what we were. If God was patient with you, can you be patient with others? Don't you remember what it was like before you knew the Lord? Don't you remember what it was like when you were a new believer? They went out from the oldest to the youngest. Maybe it's because the oldest remembered what it was like to be young. And they realized when I was young, I was pretty stupid. Amazing things happen when people bring people to Jesus. Sure didn't go the way they expected it. And you know what's awesome? The story's not even done yet. Now now they're gone and he's left alone with the woman. Before I say this, if if you listen to only one thing and remember only one thing that I say today, let it be this. Don't dwell on what you were, but don't ever forget what you were. Don't dwell on what your life without Christ was, but don't ever forget what your life without Christ was. Jesus raised himself off and raised himself up, and lo and behold, only the woman is left. Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Jesus is speaking to a woman who was just ripped away from the act of adultery, and he's just standing there talking to her. You know, there, are just, there just aren't enough humans like Jesus. I mean, Jesus was just a splendid human. There just, aren't, there just aren't enough. There just aren't enough Jesuses. And we're all supposed to be like little Jesuses in the way that we act. Here's a woman who was just doing whatever. And Jesus is standing there ministering to her. What a magnificent man Jesus was. Wow. Glorious. She says, no one, Lord. Notice what Jesus does not say. Ready for this? This blew my mind as I thought about it. Jesus did not say to her, I forgive you. He said something different, didn't he? He said, neither do I condemn you, which is something different, isn't it? Right? A lot of people will say, Jesus forgave the woman. It doesn't say that he forgave her. He he never condemned her to begin with, which is exactly what he said. I have not come in to the world to condemn the world. But that the world, we're told, through him might be saved. Because he who does not believe is condemned already. He didn't need to condemn her. She was already condemned. She was condemned by the law that the mob had quoted. She was already condemned. They were right when they said, the law says that she should be stoned. Jesus didn't correct that. They were right. The law did condemn her. 
Jesus said, I don't. Because that's not why he came. Our Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. Now, did that mean that her sin didn't matter? Then look at what he said. Go and sin no more. He said to her the same thing by implication that he said to the crowd. He didn't say it directly to the crowd. He, by pricking their consciences, showed them you need to knock off all this self-righteousness because every one of you is just as guilty as she is. But then he directly says to her the same thing. Knock it off. Stop it. Stop sinning. Now look, we're not, we're not able, dare I say, for the course of our lives to completely steer clear from sin. We are taught by him to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. And you ought to be praying for that. And we ought to be striving against sin in our lives. We will still, but even with that, we still will stumble and fall. And we are then thankful for his grace. But he tells her what? Listen, this sexual immorality stuff, you need to knock it off. You need to be pure. Listen, God is holy. Peter said, be holy for I am holy. In quoting quoting Deuteronomy. I told you last week, the one sin that people commit against themselves is sexual immorality. Every other sin they do to everybody else. When you're in sexual immorality, you're destroying yourself. Stop it. Stop it. It's why the New Testament says, flee it. Run from it. Walk in holiness before God. Don't put yourself in that place. Don't even get involved with the relationship to begin with if it's not of God. God has given us guidance and wisdom in his word regarding what kinds of relationships we should involve ourselves with. And that is to be followed. Not to be followed because you're trying to justify yourself before God, but to be followed because you can destroy yourself and dishonor the gospel. If relationships are wrong, flee. Get out of them. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. One more. I'm I'm taking this through and then we're going to sing. I'm just telling you right now. I'm on a roll here and I'm having a good time. I'm I'm enjoying myself. So you seem like you're kind of enjoying it too. So so I am going to share one more thought and then we're going to sing. All right? I love this one. John chapter 1 and verse 35. John 1.35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they, they stopped following John and they started following Jesus. Wonderful. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following and, and said to them, What do you seek? 
They said to him, Rabbi, which is to be said when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Now, verse 40. Ready? One of those two guys was a fellow named Andrew. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. And the first thing he did is he went and he found his brother. And he said, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. What's amazing about Andrew is that it was Peter who later made the confession, you are the Christ. But if you back up, here's his brother already saying to him, We've found the Messiah. In verse 42, And he brought him to Jesus. Look out. Look out. Now when Jesus looked at him, you know what he said? You're Simon. Not anymore. Now you're Cephas, which is translated a stone, which is a form of his name, Peter. He was Simon when he was brought to Jesus. He was Peter after he was brought to Jesus. He became Peter. Do I need to even lay out for you the significance of that? He became Peter. Look, we're called to bring people to Jesus. Listen, if you've found the Messiah, go find Simon. Go find your Simon. Go find your neighbor. Go find the stranger. Go find your friend and bring him. Bob was up here before, and he was rapping. What a wonderful thing to construct words like that and glorify God. You know, you know where that started? I called Bob when I was thinking about this sermon. I called Bob this week, and I said, you got to come to my office because i got to talk to you about something. I, I want to tell you about this sermon I'm thinking of preaching because I think I might be mentioning you. So that got Bob's attention because it was like, you know, I don't know if I want Pastor Lou preaching about me in church on Sunday. So, so Bob, Bob, remind me how you got saved. Because I, I, I kind of knew this and remembered it, but I wanted to make sure I had it right. So he told me that uh, he reminded me about his dad, who's also named Bob. And his dad had gotten saved. And his dad was coming to church here. His dad went and got his son and brought him to church. Now listen, he brought him to Fellowship Bible Church because that's where he went and he heard the word of God. And he brought him to Pastor Lou because Pastor Lou was preaching through the Bible, man, and this was the truth. But what he really did, that's all encouraging, but what he really did was he brought his son to Jesus. somewhere floating around in the recesses of about 10-year-old internet things is a, is a video of a, of a song where I'm sitting at that piano and playing and Bob's father is sitting in the corner over there on his guitar. Some of you, you've seen that, right? And, he, and, he, and he's sitting there and he's singing a song that he wrote. Yeah, he wrote it. And he's singing and I'm playing the piano with him and it's glorious. And then here I am today preaching and 
I didn't plan this like this, but here's, here's his son who we brought to Jesus standing up here rapping a song that he wrote. Man, you can't make this stuff up. Do you know that when you bring someone to church, when you bring someone to a place where the gospel's being preached, you might be bringing the next Peter. You might be bringing the next Bob. You might be bringing the next fill-in-the-blank. Andrew found the Messiah, and his initial inclination was to go and fetch his brother and bring him. If you've found the Messiah, this isn't just a call to bring people to church. When you go and just witness to somebody, when you just open your mouth and speak to them, really what you're doing is you're bringing them to Jesus. Now, we don't save anybody. Ultimately, what does the Bible teach? No one can come to God unless God draws him. So the spiritual aspect, the spiritual reality of someone getting saved has nothing to do with you or me. That's God draws them to himself, opens their heart, grants to them repentance and faith. But you and I are called to do the work, to do the footwork, to do the legwork of bringing them in. And you know what? I've been a Christian a long time. I can say I've been a pastor a long time. I'm starting more and more and more in my life to see that what matters is bringing people to Jesus, preaching the word of God, making disciples, loving one another, and that's it. I really am starting to just not care about anything else. I want to preach the gospel. I want to teach through the scriptures. And I want to be around people who want to do the same. And I don't care about the rest of it. Let's go find our Simons and bring them to Jesus. Here's your epilogue, and then we're going to sing a hymn. I was sharing the contents of this message with my wife. And, and she thought, wow, that's a really good, that sounds like it would be a really good sermon. And then she said to me, it's not just bringing people and bringing things, but once we're Christians, we can bring everything to him. We can bring the burdens of our hearts to him. Right? So it's not just go out as a servant and bring him in, but as a child, which is, what the, which is where we started. That's what the kingdom of God is made of. But as a child, we can bring our cares and our burdens to him. Take everything about your life to him. Come on, guys. We're going to stand up and sing one more song.